Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. Verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven, and things on earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your love, for your plan, for your will, which you have set into motion so long ago. Lord, we pray that as your word comes forth, that you would speak new life, into our hearts, that you would awaken us from our sleep, that you would awaken us from our death, God, that we would be alive in you, that, God, our hearts would be drawn to respond in awe and wonder and praise of your majesty, God. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. Would you lead this morning, and we will follow. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Glad to be here with you. First week of, of 2020. I'm going to make a New Year's resolution for you that you not be afraid to sit towards the front. It's like a high school class in here. Uh, hey, but you're here, so that's all good. Uh, so, uh, yeah, first week of the year. Uh, I'm really excited uh, to be able to preach again this week. Uh, For three weeks, other people were in the pulpit. They led and loved you uh, really well. I hope that you're encouraged by that. But uh, today I'm excited because we're going to start a new book of the Bible together, a new sermon series entitled We Are. Uh, And I've got some kind of excitement for a number of reasons about today. The first and probably the most fickle reason that I'm excited about today is, is really just personally Ephesians is my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, I don't know if you're supposed to have a favorite book of the Bible or not, if that's like okay. Maybe it's like children, you're not supposed to have a favorite, or if you do have a favorite, you're really not supposed to say it out loud, but hey, you know, I don't care. I love this book. It is my favorite, Uh, and my hope for you is that you would become as fond of it as I am by the time we finish this series. I mean, maybe even 
by the end of today. I hope that you start to end up having a deep joy and affection for this book as well. Uh, the second reason I'm excited about this book is really personally, I believe that God is not done with us. Uh, it, it is great that God has uh, sought for us to be able to uh, be alive as a church for eight years and we have not folded. So we've made it past the one year and the three year hump. Uh, that's great. Uh, but we want more than that. Just being viable and not having to close down our doors is not really a touchdown or a win, and I believe that we have more in store for us. So I believe in my heart that God is bringing us back to where we started. Uh, we launched the church going through the book of Ephesians eight years ago in the ark. If you think setup is, is rough now, we drove a trailer, and we had to Tetris things in and out of there. It was much worse then. Uh, but we're going back to where we started, believing in this spot where we started that God would rebuild our identity in him and revive our purpose as a church. I believe that's what's going to happen through this book. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm hoping for, that in the language of this book, God would show us who we are, and through recapturing who we are, we would become healthy, uh, we would become strong in him, uh, and then we would be sent back out in mission to love Columbia well. As I said, this book is important because it declares who we are. This is a book about identity, specifically the identity that a believer gets in Christ Jesus. We're going to hear that term a ton throughout this book. Uh, so we need to kind of make sure we're, we're tracking together when we talk about our identity. Our identity, according to the all-knowing Wikipedia, which is the never good to look up anything theological in Wikipedia, but identity in Wikipedia is the qualities, beliefs, personality, looks, and expression that make up a person. In other words, your identity is the sum of the parts that make you who you are. But here is something else. Our identity in our culture, or in our culture normally gets formed uh, by a couple different ways. Our identity normally gets forged out of our attributes and our accomplishments. Uh, so that means, and we've all seen it, maybe we've done it, a person can literally form their identity or have their identity rest on things like their beauty, their fitness, uh, their strength, right, the attribute side, or, or maybe the accomplishments. A person can have their identity based upon their, uh, their, their degree, their master's degree, their PhD, their, I mean, associate's degree, whatever, whatever you got, you can base your identity off of it. Maybe building a successful business was an accomplishment, and you kind of hang your hat on that. Maybe a family or a certain size of family is what you hang your hat on, a certain amount of money, a certain amount of vacations. This is what often happens. Your attributes, the accomplishments make up who you are. But if we're going to play by that game, here's the dirty opposite side of that coin. Our identity can be shaped by the not so great things as well, right? For me, my identity, be, my identity can be shaped by my huskiness, right? Uh, we can be shaped by our weakness, by our, our sickness, by our wrinkles, by our old age. We can literally have our identity happen or be forged off of something like getting fired off of a job that we thought was going to be fantastic. Maybe our identity gets formed out of dropping out of school or never going to, to college. Or maybe it's a failed business that you were sure you could make happen and then it didn't happen. Maybe your identity gets formed off of a divorce or infidelity, whether it's your fault or, or not. Or maybe infertility or miscarriages or singleness when you don't want to be single end up shaping your identity. If you're following me, if our identities are shaped by the things in life uh, according to what we look like, do, accomplish, attain or are known by most by others, then we're going to be in a weird spot uh, when life goes sideways on us because so will our identity. 
If that's the way that our identity is formed, then what happens when tragedy shows its face? What happens when we just get really disappointed and things don't work out and we didn't get as far or do as much as we thought we were going to? Or what happens in those quiet, vulnerable moments when we feel small and we don't really talk about it? What happens to our identity then when life feels pointless? Uh, what happens to our identity strength when we, we thought this one thing would fix all things and then we actually get it and it feels awful? What happens then? Well, then what happens is our self-esteem falls into a heap beside us and as Pastor Dennis says, we get shook, right? It crushes us. Here's the other way things are formed in our culture. Uh, our current age tells us that the key to happiness in a good world is just kind of not have any rules. Just let everyone do them. Let them do what they want. Happiness comes from us being allowed to do us. This has caused the modern hyper-individualistic world that we live in, right? Absolute freedom reigns on a throne right next to Instagram for us. But can I, for a moment, just ask a really practical question about that idea that doing what you want will make all things well. Let me just ask the practical question, is that actually working, though? Like, pragmatically, does the world's take on things, that if everyone could just do what they felt like in the moment, if life would be okay if they could do it, if that's the idea, is it actually giving us what we think it will? Is the trajectory that we've bought into as a Western society, is it actually good? See, if identity is formed off of what we said before, our attributes and accomplishments, and if happiness comes from unlimited choice and the removal of limitations, is that combination of freedom and identity formation, is it really delivering the goods for us? Take a quick glance at, at Twitter. You'll never hear me make that statement from the pulpit, I thought at least. Take a look at, at, at Facebook. Take a look at the news feed. Is our way of identity and happiness, do we, do we look happy? Right? Is it working? Or more dangerously, if you'd be a little bit more vulnerable for a moment, ask that question about your own heart and your own mind. Are you happy? Do you have peace? Do you have joy in this Western culture? The way that we act, is it delivering you the goods? Do you feel secure? Here's what I'm getting at. If we hang our, our hat for happiness and joy on the identity that we form based off of who we are and what we accomplish through a world where there is no rules and all things are okay, if we really hang our hat on that, we're in really big trouble because it will not work. It will never deliver you to you what you want or what you're seeking through it. Go there with me for a moment. If your happiness is predicated on you, if it's on your own back, if your happiness comes from what you make out of life, from how you feel about yourself, from your health, from what you get done, would you be honest even about your own life? How's that going for you so far? Right? Because maybe we think, well, by the time I die, it'll surely work out. Well, maybe, but you've probably got 20, 30, 40 years. How's it going so far? I don't know if it's working. Now, in case you think I'm trying to package the gospel as self-help, I would not do that. I'm not saying a sales pitch for the gospel is come to Jesus and you'll be happy. But I am saying what the Bible says to us over and over and over again. We were made for something more. We were made by a creator to find our peace and meaning in that creator and not in ourselves. Not in what we can forge for ourselves, but instead we are meant to find joy, deep joy and peace in God. If you understand the book of Genesis, in Genesis 3 in the fall, what happened there? They tried to hang their hat on them. It went really poorly. We're still doing it, but we think it's going to work better for us. 
See, the identity of a believer is more specifically based not on what you do, but what God says about his children, that they get an identity transferred to them that they did not earn. They did not earn it on their own. One outside of merit, one outside of diligence, one outside of intelligence or ability, and one that doesn't get taken away when we fall on our face. See, this is the good news that sends the Apostle Paul into an explosion of worship. If you were listening when Garrett read that text to us, Paul is like a giddy little kid, and most of it is this run-on sentence of worship where he's just geeking out and he just gets into it. He flies into worship because his heart is overcome by the reality of the identity that God has given him, so he throws out this epic praise. It's not forced. It's not manufactured. To understand why he might be so overjoyed by an identity given to him that he didn't have to earn on his own, we may need to make like a 120-mile-per-hour drive-by past the life of Paul. Paul was once a guy named Saul of Tarsus. He was a rigid Pharisee, a legalist, really smart dude who thought Jesus was awful. Uh, the, the short of it is he thought Jesus was going to eclipse and steal the religion of the Jews, so he literally set out to persecute, seek, kill, and destroy anyone who followed Jesus, and he got really, really good at it. He got really good at hunting down and hurting Christians. Some he'd put in jail, some literally he would kill for following Jesus. But one day when Paul was on a road to Damascus, Jesus encountered him. I won't go into the full story because we don't have time. Acts chapter 9, it's found there. Read it later today or this week. It's pretty epic how it goes about. But the basics are Jesus encountered Paul on that very road and he saved him. He snatched him and he saved him. Let that sink in. The guy who Paul hated saw after Paul and saved him. The guy who Paul would kill those who followed him came after Paul and saved him. And when he did, he gave him a brand new identity in that moment. Paul knew that if his life alone was forged out of his identity, he'd be in trouble, even the almighty Paul. But it wasn't Paul and who he was before or what he'd reached, or what he'd attain. Uh, It it wasn't any of those things. It wasn't that Paul used to be an enemy of Christ or a persecutor of Christians that would set his identity. It, It was now that Paul was a child of God because he'd been given a new identity. Here's the terms that we will see in the text today. Now Paul was a child of God, blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, and redeemed. His identity is one fixed by God's word. And here is the kicker that we're going to dive into today. His identity did not have anything to do with what he could forge out for himself anymore. What joy to be given Christ attributes, Christ's accomplishments, Christ's work to hang over you instead of having to depend on yours being great. This is why we understand why he says in the opening, grace and peace. Grace and peace, it's not on you anymore. See, Paul knew what I had to learn myself and continually have to learn to hitch our identity onto our own backs in the culture. Man, it seems powerful and sexy and free and fulfilling, but in reality, when you actually have to think about it and actually do it, it's terrifying. This is why securing your identity, uh, the who you are to Christ, is actually the much better, much safer, uh, much, uh, much more secure place. Because when life goes crazy and life happens and you get into the chaos, when plans fail or you feel weak, you can say out loud, much like Paul, the, the, the hymn uh, that, that we'll even sing later today, when life goes nuts, he goes, okay. In light of that, it doesn't matter because on Christ the solid rock, I stand all other ground as sinking sand. 
right? It's not on me anymore. Why? Because it's on Jesus. So all of my hope is in you. All of my trust is in you. All of my strength is in you. Everything is in you. That's why Paul launches into this session of worship. He thinks about it. He's like, because of that, praise God. Look at what he did. And I didn't do it. Now, I've told you about the identity that we found. Here's the the, the key again, in Christ. But let's look closer at it. Verses 1 through 2, we'll read those just again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who were in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus. Uh, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things that we want to pick up from the book of Ephesians is that it's absolutely saturated with theological precision and meaning. Words are not wasted in this book. Paul says what may seem like an obligatory opening to a letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he's recognizing and declaring that his current position and his identity, they come from God the Father. Not from him, but from God. This will be the first of many declarations that the identity of a believer uh, is in the hands of God, and that's a really safe place. So Paul introduces himself as the author of the book, and then he addresses who exactly the letter is to. The letter is to the saints or believers in Ephesus, and as a letter in the Bible, that will extend to us as well. But look at what it says. It says, to the saints who are faithful, this wording is so big, well, uh, to the, the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. If you don't understand this, you will not understand the book. Now, I... I'm hard-headed. Sometimes I lean into conflict a little bit, maybe. So, like, I would expect Paul to say, and if I were writing it, I would say to the believers who are faithful to Christ Jesus. Right? Like, he's taking a dig at a believer who's slipping up there. Oh, not you. You? Yeah, you. No, not you. Not you at all. Like, he's saying the lame Christians may not get this grace and peace, so they better shape up or they're going to get the hammer dropped on them. But that is exactly what Paul is striving not to say in the text. To believers, their identity is not found in their faithfulness to Christ Jesus. It is predicated only on the ability to, uh, it's not predicated on their ability to be a varsity believer. No, Paul says a believer's grace and peace come uh, not from faithfulness to Christ, but instead just faith in Christ. Little faith, a lot of faith, just faith in Jesus Christ. This is really good news. Because what does it do? You know, we, we can tend to get a little proud, a little bit chesty. We can puff ourselves up and begin to think, well, this month I'm crushing it. Hung out with like 14 people, came to church, uh, came early a couple times, sat towards the front. That's a dig. Um, that's what happens when I don't use my notes. We begin doing those things and be like, well, I, you know, with the resume that I have produced my accomplishments, my great performance. I I mean, I definitely deserve extra measures of grace. You get a pinch of grace, I get a lot of grace. Look at what I've done. As if we should get more peace because we're better than other people as well. Well, this mentality, Paul slaps it out of our hands, says, no, no, no. Let's put it this way. What is the difference between the blessings given to a believer who's been having a hard time and a believer who's crushing it? What is the difference between a believer who's struggling to do what is right and one who isn't? Paul says there is no difference. They both have the same measure of blessing and the same measure of grace and peace. A believer's blessings are not tied to the perfection of their obedience. Again, they're anchored 
simply to the true existence of faith in Christ Jesus. For anyone who has a little prodigal son, older brotherness in them, right, they work really hard and they do a bunch and they kind of measure things by what they've done, uh, you can tend to say, well, wait a minute. You know, I've been working my tail off here. I deserve more. Look at my work. Look at their work. Surely I deserve more. Surely I get more favor Don't I deserve more to be added to me? And verse 3 just addresses this out of the gate. Paul says to them, uh, hey, man, there's nothing else more that you could be given. You've been given it all. Verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul says, for those who have their faith in Christ, you've already been given everything in the heavenlies. God has through his will, through Christ, not withheld anything back. Uh, Verse 8 puts it this way. God lavished his children with all there is to have. He threw the heavenly gates open and unloaded the treasure boxes. This is the promise. So when your heart says, you know, I I, I want more, I need more. He's going, what else do you want? You've been given everything. See, if we find ourselves a little bit jaded that we don't get more than others around us, here's what it shows. It shows we're fleeing back to the old identity formation process. We really want to be rewarded by what we've done. That's great when you're killing it, but when you're not, which you won't be at some point, it's not so great. See, when we see others struggling, we shouldn't want them to have less. We should stir them to remember what they've already been given so they throw themselves fully into it again. That's the key to this. There are those who tend to think, well, you know, that kind of lavish grace preaching and teaching, it's dangerous. Doesn't it just foster a mindset that allows a believer to slack off and and not care? Doesn't it just create a licentious group of sinners who hide behind grace as an excuse to do really whatever they want? And the answer is no. Right? Here's the deal. Salvation is not a get-out-of-hell-free card, do-whatever-you-want, and there's no rules. That is a childish, unaware view of our faith, right? A a person who believes that simply isn't the family of God. Salvation is adoption into the very family of God, and when you become adopted into the family, you slowly but surely become more like the head of the family. If a person wants God's gifts but not to be conformed to the image of Christ, if that's the trajectory of their life, that person simply isn't the family of God. It doesn't matter what they say. They're pretending to claim Christianity as a means to get what they want while not following Jesus, and that's just a clear sign that they're still dead in their sins. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks in Ephesians 2. See, it's not a licentious freedom card to do whatever you want. The person who does that all of their life does not know Jesus. See, the system is also good. It deals with the proud person, but it also deals with us when you and I slip up, when, when we're not leaning into dependence on Christ very well, when prayer and trust and obedience and becoming like Christ has all but kind of disappeared because we've ignored him for the 1,000th time and done our own thing. When that happens, we can realize even though we think we deserve shame, when we're afraid that God may kick us out or throw us out, we can remember at that moment of perceived failure that we still have every blessing locked away and secure in Christ Jesus. And then we get to once again say, in Christ the solid rock I stand. Because no other ground, especially the ground of my abilities, is going to be strong. So I throw my hope and my trust and my strength in him, circles back again to Paul going, praise God. That's actually good news. 
Now, we've been talking about the application of our blessings in Christ, but let's look closer at what exactly all these blessings are uh, because we have to fully process them, and when we get them down deep, we will have an identity that is secure and firm in Jesus. So I want to look back at verses 3 through 10, uh, if you'll pop those back up there for me. Notice the way things are laid out. Paul is going to strain in the text to highlight God's work. That's in blue. Right? And then you're going to see Paul is going to strain, how does that work get accomplished? That's in green. And then if you pay careful attention, uh, our work is going to be in there. It's going to be in pink. Okay, So look carefully for pink. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed, blue, us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For even as he chose us, blue, in him, green, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Next. One more. Yeah. In love he predestined, blue, us for adoption, blue, to himself as sons, Through Jesus, green, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. One more. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. How much was pink? Yeah, there you go. The list of blessings or things that God has done here is breathtaking. Paul, the way this is lined out, I'm a visual learner, so I pop it up like that just because it makes a lot of sense to me. Paul's going really, really hard at trying for us to be able to see the beauty of what has been done for us outside of us. God blessed us, chose us, predestined us, adopted us, redeemed us, and forgave us. And these blessings are, make, are what make up the we are part of this series. They are true for every single Christian, whether hanging on by a thread or they're not. They're unremovable, unbreakable, unchangeable, unending elements of our identity if we are in Christ. See, if we remember talking about identity formation in the world around us, right, back to the beginning, if it is formed by our attributes and accomplishments, most often what Paul is doing is radically shifting identity formation for us. Now your identity is not forged on your attributes and accomplishments anymore. It's formed on the attributes and accomplishments of Christ by the will of God the Father in heaven. That's a whole lot of firepower that brings that to you. That's good news. The who we are as Christians is no longer up to us and us alone. The who we are is now in the rock-solid word of God directly given to us. This is why Paul, though he used to persecute Christians, is safe. Why? Because he doesn't have to hang on his accomplishments in his past anymore. This is why Paul, even though he knows he still screws up, feels secure. If you read some of his letters, he's like, man, there's so often I know what is right to do, and I can't do it. Even me, Paul, the writer of a ton of the New Testament, I can't always do what is right, but I'm still secure. And this is why when part of this letter is written while he's in jail, he can still have peace and joy. Because nothing, I mean, nothing he does can shake or break the identity formation that has been given to him by God in Christ. Nothing I do and nothing the world throws at me can steal it. We'll talk about these 
terms of blessing throughout this series more, uh, the terms chosen, predestined, adopted, and redeemed. Uh, so I'm not going to plumb the depths of them theologically today, uh, and I also don't want to turn this into a classroom setting. Uh, but if we look at the terms, the ones uh, especially at the beginning that cause the most just kind of grief or frustration, uh, and just start with chosen and predestined this morning, the way Paul wants us to look at them is this, because we can often think of like Calvinism and Arminianism and all these different things that could maybe cause some tension. Maybe you just see it as Paul saying, hey guys, God initiated it all. God did it all. He initiated it all. God is, and here is uh, the, the key, God in love decided to save his children. Notice the text says in verse 4 this, he did so before the creation of the world. If God chose to save his children before the creation of the world, then it's safe to say your salvation or your faith in Jesus Christ was something decided upon before you decided to kind of weigh the pros and cons of Christianity. It was a done deal way before that. Long before you tried to be moral or be good enough or wise enough or kind of appear like you had more together, your salvation was decided way before you even thought, maybe I should try any of that. See, God set his eyes on you, made a plan for you, and sent Jesus for you. Why? Because he loves you. Now, when we go like, okay, well, why did he love me? And why doesn't he love other people? Let me give you a really deep theological answer. I don't know and the Bible doesn't say. Above my pay grade, I, I can't tell you why. I, I really don't know. It just says this is what he does. Do you know who is chosen or anything else like that? Absolutely not. So love and preach to all people. We created a, a PDF for this series. It's on Realm. I'll post some other links for it as well. We go deeper into this discussion since it can cause a lot of tension. Download that and you can, you can kind of see it there if you want to wrestle with it more. Then Paul says, not only did God choose and predestine those who believe, he also adopts them. Man, I wish we could feel this one. There is this belief that hangs around, and we actually hold on to it a lot, that believe that, like, all people are God's children. Everyone in God is in God's family. Yeah, that's actually not in the Bible. Um, sinners are not God's children, they're his enemy. And so it is God grabs some of his enemies for reasons we don't know and turns them into sons and daughters. If we think all people are God's children, we will miss the enormity of what it means to personally actually be adopted. Right, well, they are too. No, they're not. And that should actually motify, motivate you to love and preach to them, not feel like you're better than them. God actually adopts and brings you into his family. Let that sink in. If God adopts and brings us into the family, that means he didn't just save people to have minions and servants. He saves them for the specific purpose of making them sons and daughters so they get the same love and the same privileges as Jesus. This is not a gift that all people have. We want them to, but it's only for those who are in Christ. Then that presses into talking about being redeemed and forgiven in Christ. So, as I thought about this, this is the best way I can try and uh, press down into this one. Hypothetically, because you probably haven't, right? Uh, hypothetically, have you ever done something wrong to a friend or family member? Right? Have you ever really done something not cool? And then after that, time has gone by and you feel that the relationship is strained or fractured because of what you've done. Maybe you asked for forgiveness. Maybe you tried to make amends. Or maybe you're all sweet for a while to try and make up for it, but yet... 
things don't feel right, the, the relationship is hurt, you feel distant, like, you can just tell things are not, things aren't good. Well, because God chose to save and predestine believers and he also adopts them, that means the strain in your relationship with God does not exist anymore because of Jesus. There's no residual trauma. There's no saltiness. And don't we all feel like that? I mean, he's so mad at me right now. There's no saltiness. Uh, there's no cold shoulder, at least not on his part. On ours, quite often. On his, none. It doesn't exist. Your sin, your defiance, your rebellion against God are completely gone. Because God forgot about them? No, because then he wouldn't be just. They're gone because Jesus paid for them all on the cross. That's why he had to die. The full cup of God's wrath and justice was poured out and exhausted on Jesus. So there's literally nothing for him to be frustrated with you about. See, that's what redeemed means. You had a bill that kept you in slavery, but that bill is now paid in full, so you're no longer a slave. And it's not just that you're free from slavery. You're now a son or daughter of God who is fully forgiven. How forgiven are you? Well, Christ paid for your past, present, and future sin, so that means you're fully forgiven. And the text strains to show you what that means. You're fully forgiven so that you could be blameless. Even for that thing? Yeah, even for that thing. You could be blameless, and your status and identity could be given to you because of what Christ has done and not what you do. Again, the idea of full forgiveness, it bothers some people because they imagine the worst-case scenario, using forgiveness as a free pass to do what they want. But anyone who does that just simply isn't a son or daughter. Let's just be honest. Right? Yes, people do that. No, they're not Christian. Paul addresses that in another letter. Should we sin all the more so grace should abound? He's like, no, that's ridiculous. Don't do that. We have margin to mess up. Praise God. We don't have margin to not care. Right? That, that's a sign that you're not in the family. That, that's not to heap shame up. It's just the reality of what the Bible shows. You can fall on your face. You can't run your whole life not caring. Now, I know that this type of scenario of unmerited blessing applied to believers, it seems crazy. Right? Because everything around us works the exact opposite. Everything around us, everything in our world is based on what you merit, how you perform, your excellence, your achievement, what you get done. And God goes, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to love my kids like that. I'm, I'm going to love them differently. This is what grace means. This is what actually brings peace into your life. If we would slow down and be just super honest, even the, the gruffest person who's like, I don't need anybody. Like the deepest internal need that we all feel is we want to be loved. There's not a person here who wouldn't say one of their deepest needs is to be loved, and we want to be fully loved, right? All of us. But how, how do we want that love, though? We want to be loved when we're on our A game, and we want to be loved when we're having a terrible day and we're a complete jerk. We want to be loved when we look good, right, with a, a fresh fade and a fresh haircut or hairstyle. And we want, to, we want to be loved when our breath is kicking in the morning. We want to be loved when we're strong and striving to be like Christ. And we want to be loved when we get adult ADD and, and don't touch our Bible in three weeks. Well, this is exactly what God the Father gives to his children. Full love, full acceptance through full pardon and full adoption. See, we've all been places or found ourselves in situations where you kind of look around and you're like, I don't know if I belong here, right? Just me? Maybe you're in like a too high class of thing, like, ooh, I feel out of place. We've all been there. See, the gracious love of God through choosing, predestining, adopting, and redeeming says to us in every moment of every day you belong in God's family, right? You have a spot here. 
you are not here by accident. And what does the enemy tell us? You're here by accident. You are an accident. You have no place here. God goes, no, no, no. You're not here by accident. And hear this. You staying here isn't up in the air. This is your home. This is your family. You'll never be cast out. You have already been given these blessings through Christ, which makes you an heir and a loved and cherished family member in God's family. Again, this reality is what makes Paul burst forth in joy, saying, praise God. Praise him for this unimaginable gift that he gives to wayward, wicked people like me. Praise God that when everything on earth seems to be movable and and not be steady and not be dependable, that the love of God and the identity that God gives to his children will never fail, it'll never run out, and it won't go up and down like the stock market. It's there, and it's firm, and it won't move. Now, I want to connect a couple things for us as we try and wind down this opening message to this series. This opening message has been all about heaping on the love of God to our hearts. Right, this is what Paul's doing. Like, can you believe this love? To show the immeasurable greatness of God's love. But then we need to, uh, we need to kind of look at the Bible as, as an entire book and not 66 different books. In the last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation, uh, there's this section, there's letters written to different churches, and one of these letters written is to the church of Ephesus. Right to the exact people that this letter is to. And John writes to them from the words of Jesus, uh, this word of concern. He says, okay, guys, theologically you're solid. I mean, some of you can spell propitiation. That's not in there. You do a lot of great things. You work really, really hard. But, But this I have against you. You've lost your first love. Something would sit on you. You work hard. You know a lot. You have the right answers. But your love is that's different. Now, theologically, he wasn't saying that you've lost your salvation. God's love was applied to believers already. It's secure. They're sealed. That's not being taken away. But what Jesus says to them through John is you're still loved, you're still fully loved and saved. But in all you're doing. In your grind of life, in the day-to-day aspects of your life, you, you've just lost sight of loving me. Get this one, because this one will land on us. You've substituted your heart with your actions. You'll work for me, but you don't ever really want to be close to me. That love which you had for me before, that doesn't burn like it did before. You aren't even necessarily doing anything overtly, horrifically sinful. We just aren't close. We're a working relationship, not a loving one on your part. So this is, I think, how we need to close this. Because even the ending of the book of Ephesians wraps back into talking about uncorruptible love. For all who consider themselves Christians here, just an honest gauge right now. Man, how's your, how's your love? How's your affection? How's your closeness? How's your relationship with Jesus right now? We've talked about how great his love is for you. Look at all the blessings he pours on you. But how's your love and affection for him? What's the temperature of your heart towards Christ? How is it? Be honest. Is it burning hot? 
Is it growing? Is it flourishing? Or is it just kind of like a slow drip? And it's not out, but man, it's not a blaze. Now hear me if you're going, well, I didn't see this message going this way. You gave us all the good news, and now you're smacking us. The reason I ask this is not to guilt you into working hard to love Jesus back. Right? I ask it because of what we find in the text today. In verses 1 through 14 of Ephesians, so the text today and the text tomorrow, the phrase, in Christ, or something like it, appears 11 times. One long run on sentence, 11 times he says, in Christ. That's not an accident. In the book of Ephesians, altogether, 30 plus times, we're going to see this phrase of in Christ. In Paul's writing as a total, I think there's 66 or more times that we see him say, in Christ. What is he doing in this phrase, in Christ Jesus? It doesn't mean that Jesus is the, the mode of our blessings. It doesn't mean that he is the, the how we get our blessings, as if being close to Jesus is the means to an end of getting stuff. No, Jesus is much bigger than that. What Paul is saying, Jesus is the blessing. He is it, meaning Jesus isn't the path to get to the goal of grace and peace. No, no, no. Being near Jesus is how you feel grace and peace. Being near him isn't a work that you perform. Paul is declaring that Jesus is grace. He is peace. He is joy. He is love. He is everything. You don't go through him to get things. You find those things inside of him. See, we don't use Jesus to get what we want. In him is all the substance of everything that our soul craves. When Revelation says, hey, you've lost your first love, It's declaring this then. Man, be careful. You're missing the fountainhead of all you need. Right? To work for Jesus or try and follow Jesus without being near him, which, let's just be honest, Redemption Hill, that's our MO for 2019, which God is pulling us out of. To work for him and not be near him is not a win. It is something that will dry up your heart. It will exhaust your affection. You'll become bitter towards those people around you. It will wear you down, and it definitely will not build you up. In that vein, we can understand why the book of John says Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. It's telling us, not metaphorically or in some airy way, he's trying to literally say our nourishment, our strength, our fruit, our health come from and are proportionally tied to our ability to connect to and abide in Jesus. To the way we literally draw near him for all that we need. Because we have to understand that in Christ is all we need. Christ doesn't get you to heaven, he is heaven. We've got to wrap our mind around that. He is all we need. See, we often get so weird uh, about, we get in these weird phases where reading our Bible and prayer and silence before God or worship, like, oh, it just doesn't feel good, so I'm not going to do it. And it just kind of feels like work, and it becomes like duty, and we have to do it or else God's going to be angry, so we kind of do it, and then we check our phone. You know, all, all these things, we're wrestling with things we don't want to, to do, but Think about the way our bodies work and compare it to the way our souls work. We need sleep every day. Why? Because our bodies need to be recharged quite often or they break down and they don't do so well. Or our soul needs the same type of recharge that only comes in Christ Jesus. You have to find it in him. Only when we connect back to Jesus Will we uh, have the things that we need most? I pray that the Holy Spirit would help us understand that. It is in him all the things that you need. 
Now, my deep prayer for us in 2020 is this, that we would not just kind of operate around Jesus to get things anymore, but we profoundly know for the first time what it means to love, cherish, and draw near to him because he's just better than everything else. Man, that would be a good year. If you're not a believer and you haven't put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, man, I'm glad you're here. I just want to tell you this, this love that we're talking about today, right? We don't hold it in a secure bank account and not let you in. If you feel your heart being drawn to it as well, understand you don't have to earn it. You don't have to get a whole bunch of things right. You don't have to learn our motions in order to, to get in it. You confess your need and lean into it. Man, I'd love to pray with you about that. Jesus, if your heart is kind of feeling this thing, he's drawing your heart. God is drawing you towards him. Don't let a moment pass by without finding what you need in Christ as well. Christ isn't just our thing as in other people's. It's, it's all of ours. I pray that if he's drawing you, you would lean into it. God is good. As Paul says uh, in this text, he thinks of all the identity that God has given him. He just praise God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Look at what he's done. He's given us all of these things, even on my bad day, even on your bad day. Man, you can come back up. What we're going to do today is we're going to close in praise and worship. So we'll sing songs to praise God and Christ for what they've done for us. That's why we're doing it. It's not just a thing for people who like music. We are declaring with our mouth the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. And then we'll come to the table and we'll be able to take uh, communion and remember his sacrifice. When you take the bread and dip it into the cup, you're remembering his body was broken and his blood was shed. So those blessings that you have, they're not free. There was a high price, but yet it's been paid. So you can come to the table and you can take. Anyone can come and take. You do not have to be a member here. Just listen to me. All we ask is that your faith be in Jesus if you come and take. That's the only rule. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. This is this about communion. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You can come to the table and proclaim the mighty thing that's been done for you. And remember, no matter what your life is like or your week is like, there's still a sacrifice for you. Will you stand and pray with me today? Father, we thank you for the blessings that you've given us. You're far better and far more gracious than we have deserved to lavish such beautiful blessings and bring us into your family and forgive us even from the things that we're still uh, struggling with, and we thank you for that. I pray that through this year and through this series, we would understand what it means to be found in you, to be secure in you, to be loved by you, God, that you would draw us close. Holy Spirit, come and draw near. Let us see the things that we're putting in front of being near to you. I pray that we would learn to draw near to the fountainhead of all that we need, who is Christ. May your will be done here. May you be glorified here. Thank you for your blessings and your mercy and your kindness. We pray this in your name. Amen.